You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. In this month's episode, we turn our attention skyward to the captivating world of space and specifically satellite technology. Humankind's fascination with the cosmos has never really wavered, but last year saw a resurgence in interest by the return after nine years of a fully reusable space vehicle and its first human crew when Benkin and Hurley took off in the Dragon capsule atop the Falcon 9 rocket. But the launch of satellites is often met with much less fanfare, Yet we couldn't live our technology-driven lives, and we certainly wouldn't have learnt about the wonders beyond our solar system without them. In fact, of the 104 successful space flights last year, about 80% of them were to put satellite technologies into space. My guests today are passionate about satellite technology, how they operate, communicate, and how they are changing the way we perceive the universe. Christine Broccoli-Blatt, Senior Project Manager at Mullard Space Science Laboratories, took time out of her day to talk to me about building satellites and how her work will tell us more about the physics of our sun. Hi Chris, and welcome to the first Eye2Eye episode of 2021. It is great to have you on the show. Now, I know you have been an active member of the IMACI for many years, been on council and other strategic boards, and particularly in the southeast region where your regional chair And I also know just how passionate you are about STEM outreach and education and encouraging young people into this profession. But tell us about Chris, the engineer, because as far as I'm concerned, you have got the coolest job on the planet. So what's it like building instruments for satellites? Hi, Helen. Thank you for having me. It's like uh, I'm a big kid, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got a big Lego set. So my job, uh, I'm a senior project manager for Mullard um, Space Science Laboratory, which is part of UCL. And our mission, as it were, is to design space instruments for satellites. Um, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I've always been a Star right. Trek fan and a Star Wars fan. And, and everybody who knows me knows how big a geek I am. And I, I started off with always wanting to be a chartered engineer. I wanted to design cars and I all my schooling was focused around being an engineer. And I went to Birmingham University and got a degree in mechanical engineer, was a sponsored student from Doughty Aerospace. And eventually I got the opportunity to work at Ricardo Consulting Engineers down in Shoreham by Sea. Um, from there, I got chartered and became um, focused in more engineering projects the project right. management side. Um, and I got this opportunity to, I saw one day, my, actually it was my husband, saw one day an advert for a thermal engineer at uh, Mullard Space Science Laboratory. And I went for the interview thinking, um, I'm not going to get it. I'll just find out because I wanted to be Scotty on Star Trek. 
And um, my the interviewer, my uh, head of mechanical engineering at, at Mallard, said, um, "What else do you do?" I said, I'm, "I project manage." He went, "Okay," and I got the job offer the next day. Um, wow! So that was twenty years ago. <laughs> I haven't left since, and. Um, I've been working. I think I was, I'm on my sixth or seventh flight mission at the moment. So uh, that's um, incredible. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. The last 14 years, I think that's what we're going to go on to talk about. It's a solar orbiter mission um, that has been sort of my biggest project. Yeah, the solar orbiter mission. I'm really excited to talk about. Just to give um, our listeners a bit of background, that the, the so- solar orbiter mission took off in early 2020. Um, and will help scientists analyse the heliosphere, which is the vast bubble of charged particles that engulf the whole solar system. It's going to examine the sun in much greater detail than ever before and to understand the links between it and the heliosphere. So that's going to give scientists uh, some real insight into how these two things behave together. It's going to do 22 orbits around the sun. And although data collecting is already underway in the cruise phase, the full mission will start in November 2021. Now, if all goes to plan with the mission, uh, it will hopefully continue into an extended mission period planned for 2026 to 2030 so that the spacecraft can be manoeuvred into higher solar latitudes and look down on the poles of the sun. Now, that's incredible, Chris. I mean, how do you make sure that a satellite is going to survive in those sort of conditions for that length of time? Solar Orbiter was very a challenging mission, and we knew that from the start. It's sort of the first ideas of Solar Orbiter and what the scientists wanted to do was back in 1998. So we're sort of, from the initial ideas of Solar Orbiter, we're sort of like in the 22nd, 23rd year of this mission. Building a satellite is a long process and takes a lot of time and effort, sort of designing, putting proposals in, uh, evaluating what what exactly the scientists wanted to do. And for Solar Orbiter, the the brief was simple in that they wanted to ensure the heliosphere, this sun's sun's effect on, on the solar system, how it's actually generated and try and get Solar Orbiter as close as, it, as we've ever been before and as close to the poles because we've, we've never been there before. And also we've got two sets of instruments on the satellite. Some are what we call remote sensing. They're um, telescopes at various different wavelengths. Um, and then we've got in situ instruments which measure properties actually around the spacecraft. And what we're trying to do is, as the satellite moves through space, it will encounter particles from the sun, mainly from the solar wind. Um, it will encounter magnetic waves. It will encounter radio waves. Um, and the in situ instruments measures these properties at the spacecraft. And what we're trying to tie up is their variability, their strength in response to things that have actually happened in the sun. So it's, it's exciting for solar physicists because that's the first time we've ever done that. Um, the cameras are actually on on the telescopes are some of the most uh, precise we've ever sent. So, you know, the first images from the sun have been sort of amazing, seeing the detail uh, at the scale on the on the sun's surface. So it was uh, the biggest challenge, as everybody can expect, was the heat. Right, yeah. Solar Orbiter was designed 
with a with a heat shield, um, and a lot of research went into that. It was the first thing they they actually decided right. This is what we need to develop is this heat shield that the instruments stay behind. Um, the telescopes look out through it behind little shutter doors, um, and two of my sensors actually peek over the top of it. So that was one of the one of the things because electronics. Um, if anybody knows, if anybody's left their iPhone on a radiator, will know that electronics don't like being hot. They like being <laughs> yeah. nice and toasty warm at room temperature. So that was the the whole challenge of balancing the coldness of space against the heat coming from the sun at various levels of the orbit was that. What we tend to do with satellites and all equipment we send to Earth, we build prototypes. And the first prototype we built was a performance one. Can we actually build uh, sensors that measure the properties that we want at the rates we want to actually answer these scientific questions? We then go on and build what we call a structural thermal model, which look exactly like what we're going to fly um, um, and they're structurally the same and thermally the same the thermal behavior is the same it gives out the right, same yeah. heat it's got the same heat sinks um, and then test those to make sure that they can survive a the rocket launch and b sort of 12 years 13 years in space traditionally we've always trying to put these these models in serial, these prototypes in, in serial, so we actually can feed some back into, but we had to learn a little bit more, do that a bit faster with Solar Orbiter because it had a shorter project span. Right. Um, and so we were actually at the same time built the STM, built an engineering model, which um, could behave in software, behave electrically the same as the instruments. So they didn't look like them, but they actually behaved. They had the right electronics in them. Um, we could stimulate, you can sort of synthesize, simulate a, a particle hitting the detectors and they would uh, behave to actually help us develop the software, help us develop the, the power systems. Because we have got a base voltage on the spacecraft of 28 volts and some of these sensors need thousands of volts to actually operate so the onboard transformers are just simply amazing um, yeah i can imagine <laughs> well yeah I, I mean i'm I'm fascinated by that i mean the the solar wind analyzer that that's on board solar orbiter now you were involved in developing i think three sensors is that right for the swa suite yeah so so what are these sensors for and what sort of information are you able to glean from from the data that they send back Okay, so my job is as project manager for Solar Wind Analyzer. So I'm in charge of the day-to-day running of building the suite. I always liken it so that we've got a chief scientist, Professor Chris Owen. He's, if you liken him to Star Trek, he's Captain Picard and I'm Commander Riker. So I'm basically in charge of the whole of the enterprise and day-to-day. And Solar Wind Analyzer is made up of three sensors. We've got the Electronic Analyzer System, or EAS. That's built by my own institution, Allard Space Science Laboratory. And that detects electrons. That sits at the back of the spacecraft on the on the boom, way out in the cold. Then we've got uh, the heavy ion sensor that's built by NASA, uh, leading with Southwest Research and a number of 
um, un- American universities, New Hampshire, Michigan, and also Goddard Space Science. And that detects heavy ions. That's sort of the, the basic particles at the lower end of the periodic table. And then finally, the third sensor is the proton alpha sensor. So that's picking up protons and alphas. And that's built by IRAP in France, Toulouse. So I've got three... I've got a British team, I've got an American team, and I've got a French team predominantly. Each of the teams had actually had help from um, the French team kind of helped the American team. Um, another French team helped us. We helped the French team as well. <laughs> and it because some of the technologies are similar, we've, it was a way to develop the, the sensors on tight budgets um, between because no one country can do a whole instrument. Yeah. that's as complicated as the solar wind analyzer and then all th- three sensors then connected to its own onboard computer or the data processing unit as we call it and that was built by the Ameri- by the italians uh irap with a number of commercial companies over in italy um we all been working together so i've been in charge of four teams um managing the development of this analyzer now their aim is to analyze the solar wind um, and look at the different sets of particles look at the population um the speed of the particles and also their energies and from that we can develop maps of the solar wind um as it hit the spacecraft and by linking that up to the data on the telescopes we can see what events on the sun actually generate these these different types of solar wind ah okay so you're creating lots of you're bringing lots of different images different data sets together to to create a picture if you like yeah. a weather picture <laughs> a weather picture yeah fantastic so the, the um, EAS analyzer system was built at MSSL and um, we're using sort of the 28 volts that come into the system. We're transforming it up to up to about 4,000 volts. And it's basically on the principle that we put in a positive voltage on a, a surface and the electron is attracted to that surface. And by having various surfaces at different potentials, we can move the electron so it can hit particular particle and because the aperture is 360 degrees open we can then work out which angle the the um, electron has come into and we did the design work on the the box um, look at the electronics and then we got a detect the actual detector itself it was produced by uh, LPP which is um, one of the French universities in Paris and they gave, gave us that uh, a lot of this is collaboration. That was the challenge for me to get, you know, four different teams with four different sort of cultural backgrounds to work together uh, on time. <laughs> I try and encourage people to, um, to motivate people through leadership. And, that, and that's been an absolute challenge. And I've made some like some really good friends because we've had meetings together and we've gone out and socialised afterwards um, and, and try and put a sense of community together that's quite actually quite global. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very much um, the sense that I'm getting from you in terms of this is not only the challenge, the engineering challenge, but actually working globally with with so many engineers and scientists all o- all across the world to solve this problem. I mean, and the length of time it's taken you to get this into space is such a, a, a fantastic story, which I think really can resonate with many engineers around the world, which is fantastic. So, Chris, there's been quite a lot of interest in the development of new propulsion systems recently for satellites and, and particularly deep space missions. 
the UK government has announced a four million pound investment at the end of last year for the state of arts uh, satellite propulsion test facility that's going to be built at Aylesbury. Now, the UK already has a growing space manufacturing sector. So, so how do you see this investment will will benefit the satellite market in the coming years and the sort of work that you're doing? I've always believed that Britain's best kept secret is its space industry. You know, a number of times people said, oh, do we actually work in space? Any investment that the government puts in or private companies put in into our industry is going to not only benefit the industry, but benefit the country as a whole. As for development of new propulsion systems, um, I'm quite excited about that because um, it would only promote the UK as an engineering source. We are renowned for being able to solve problems and, and, and get things done um, within the industry. I do believe that, you know, this is a sort of benefit and also the future engineers to come that will take the UK space industry into new heights, as it were. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, it's an industry that not many people know about in the UK, and yet we have this big centre down in Harwell, don't we, where all of these yeah. organisations come together. Um, and, and you know, it's a really growing industry, not just the satellite and, and space industry, but all of the, the supply chain that goes with that. It's certainly uh, great to see the government investing this kind of money to enable uh, the UK and people like yourself to continue the work that you're doing. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really appreciated you taking the time out of your what must be incredibly busy day uh, to talk to us about just a small part of what you've been doing with Solar Orbiter. So what's what's the ne- next big mission that you're working on then at the moment? I'm currently a senior project manager for an instrument called Viz. Um, it's a camera that is searching for dark matter and the Euclid mission is um, due for launch in 2022. Uh, we're currently testing the instrument actually on the satellite um, and again that's a European mission and that's that's very exciting because that's looking at dark matter and dark energy in the universe and trying to discover you know the missing 96% that we can't account for in the universe. That sounds really exciting and well beyond my ability to understand it. I'll leave that to the physicists, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I just order them about. <laughs> Chris, thank you ever so much for sharing your wonderful career and, and, and what you're working on. And it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Helen. Mike Lawton knows a thing or two about squeezing large structures into small spaces and has built an award-winning business innovating deployable assemblies for the satellite industry, such as solar panel arrays, antennas and boom systems. His motivation is to challenge tried and tested techniques by creating lighter, less complex and lower cost systems for satellite manufacturers. I began by asking Mike what propelled him into the satellite industry. Welcome to Eye to Eye, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would very much like to start with your journey into the satellite engineering world because you're an electronic and electrical engineer by training, aren't you? But you, you're also a serial entrepreneur. So so what got you interested in the space industry and, and how did you end up being the founder of Oxford Space Systems? 
Well, uh, hi, Helen. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk today. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. I trained uh, as an electrical electronic engineer. That's what my degree is in. And also, I think, unusually, perhaps for someone with a degree, I also did an apprenticeship in electrical engineering uh, in my local shipyard, as it was at the time, probably giving away my age there. So I became quite experienced on working on things like uh, the electrical systems for nuclear submarines and, and frigates and destroyers. So quite a, a broad exposure at a very young age to the world of engineering. But in parallel to that, when I was growing up, and the reason I got into to space and science and, and, and engineering was, I think like a, a lot of kids, I grew up on a diet of Star Trek, that's the original one, the original Star Trek, uh, and Doctor Who, uh, and just became absolutely fascinated with, with with technology. And that kind of really turned me on to the fact of, hey, you, you know, maybe if I, at that time, can I actually be uh, an astronaut? And that was my my aspiration. But then kind of worked out that was actually a very limited career choice. Only a very small handful <laughs> of people at that time actually got to, to be on orbit. So I thought if I can't actually be someone who's going to fly in a spaceship, maybe I could get into designing spaceships and things that go on orbit. Uh, and that really kind of set me on that trajectory of, of ultimately uh, getting into the space sector and then founding my own space business. I, I think we we all at some point have had Star Trek or Star Wars or something along those lines as, as a catalyst for, for our interest in engineering. I certainly have. And I was going to say, the, the real geeks uh, amongst us who grew up in the UK and are of a certain vintage may even remember a program called Blake's Seven on, on BBC. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and that had a fantastic spacecraft in there called the Liberator. Uh, and I just, just thought that was better than the Starship uh, uh, Enterprise. And, and I'm sure people can uh, look on YouTube and, and find some some early clips from that very cardboard-setted program that uh, the whole set would wobble when the actors rushed in. But that was me. For me, that was one of the, uh, the iconic programs that really turned me on to kind of space technology and artificial intelligence, a great kind of computer in there called ORAC. And I thought, my gosh, this is wonderful stuff. Or ORAC is probably my favourite um, computer robot, however you'd like to describe him, uh, of his time. Um, despite him being a, a fictional object, he, he certainly sparked a lot of interest in me about the idea of, um, you know, of artificial intelligence. He, so, he did a yeah, lot for I, a plastic box with LEDs in, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did, yeah. <laughs> now, Mike, you've been quoted as calling what you do as IKEA satellites. But I, I know that there's there's a lot more to it than that. So I, I think it's safe to say that you've pioneered some of the most complex deployable uh, antenna arrays in the business, which for those of our listeners who, who don't understand, it's about maximizing the stowage efficiency and minimizing the mass of the antenna arrays. And I can only describe the images that I've seen of, of your antennas as Engineering origami is probably the best way. You, you you fold these huge arrays into such tiny spaces. So tell us a little bit about how you do that and what kind of processes you go through to develop one of these arrays. Yeah, certainly. Perhaps if we start with why we have to, to do this. Um, when people see a rocket taking off, I don't think most people realise that roughly 95% of that 
is a big fuel tank. We need a huge amount of energy to get a very relatively small payload or satellite uh, on, on, on orbit. And it really is just the top pointy bit, the cone of the satellite or the canopy, as we call it which actually is the storage space for us to, to take uh, you know, the thing that's going to pay the bills of, of that rocket uh, on orbit. So it means anything currently we want to get on orbit has to stow in the absolute smallest possible space uh, as possible and be as light as possible. And that means any large object we want on orbit, be that a solar panel or an antenna, has to stow in the most efficient way possible. So the the art of designing spacecraft uh, is probably one of the toughest engineering challenges out there. Uh, And when you think about it, you've got to design this thing that's going to live on orbit for many, many years to survive a journey of about 10 minutes. And it's a bit like designing a a town car that's only ever going to go to and from the local supermarket. But before you're allowed to take delivery of it, it's got to survive the Paris-Dakar rally. And then you can use it in the application you actually want to use it for. So we've got to design everything to actually survive the violence of launch. And then it has a pretty uh, benign existence in terms of the mechanical stresses it's going to see when it's on, on orbit. So all that has to be taken into account as well when we're designing uh, the spacecraft. Uh, and you mentioned the word origami, and that's exactly the technique we use with some of the antennas. If you can imagine a large parabolic antenna surface, uh, we quite often see these as satellite dishes on ground stations. You know, we want the equivalent of that on orbit. So, how do we get such a large parabolic area into an incredibly small volume without? damaging it and obviously having it reliable such that it can deploy on on orbit. So when you think about that surface, it has to be a flexible material. And we need to stow it in a certain way that when we deploy it on orbit, we don't have any deformation or creases. Uh, An origami is the art of folding material without damaging it, without creasing it. So we do actually use a lot of origami techniques in folding antenna surfaces to get them to to behave as we want uh, on orbit. And uh, since getting into uh, designing uh, antennas, I've become amazed at the mathematics behind origami. It's in fact a very, very disciplined uh, art form and mathematicians love writing the formulas to describe various folding patterns. And of course, if you can describe something mathematically, that lends itself to simulation. And what the space industry really likes is being able to simulate and prove things. So we've taken this very ancient art form and translated it into essentially a working science and technology we can use to pioneer the next generation of antennas we have on orbit. That's just amazing to me. I will make sure that I put some pictures up on the feed for the the podcast so that people can see some of the complex designs that you've created. The the origami process is is just really fantastic. And as you rightly described, the mathematics behind it as well is, is really fascinating. So it's great to be able to see how we can get such big objects into such tiny spaces. Now, I couldn't really talk about satellites with you, Mike, without talking about space debris. The The UK government has announced last year a new million pound fund 
for projects to tackle the growing problem of hazardous space debris, giving organisations a grant up of up to £250,000 uh, to come up with smart solutions to the problem. Do you think that the reclamation of space junk will become just as important as part of the design process of the satellites in the future. So rather than just kind of letting them clog up near space, we'll have to think about how we're going to bring them back and, and reuse some of this material. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I think exactly the same attitude we took with the Earth's oceans when we thought, you know what, the ocean is an infinite dustbin. We can just dump anything in there and it really doesn't matter. Well, it turns out it really does matter. And obviously plastic pollution has really highlighted you can't treat something as huge as the ocean as an, an infinite uh, waste waste basket uh, and that was really our approach to to satellite technology when we first started launching uh, obviously uh, on orbit your surface area is vastly greater than that of of the earth and we kind of almost thought it's an infinite volume kind of you know what could possibly uh, go wrong here you know it's a yeah. huge space but you know, it turns out that stuff, at least in low Earth orbit, is going to hang around for many, many decades, in some cases, several hundreds of years. And uh, we've discovered a fact that uh, we can't just assume debris is going to behave itself. Um, it interacts with other debris. Uh, and I believe the current predictions are if we never launched another satellite just with accidental collisions between satellites and debris on orbit, our debris cloud is naturally increasing at a few percentage points per year. So we've got a, uh, not quite a runaway effect, but we've got a cumulative effect that we've now set in, in, in action. So that's why we're now seeing these initiatives that actually we've now got to start cleaning up space. Um, and it's worth pointing out that debris isn't uniformly distributed uh, on orbit. We have sweet spot orbits where it makes a lot of sense to put a, a communication satellite or, or an Earth observation satellite. So we have these orbiting bands, a bit like the rings of Saturn uh, of debris clouds. So we have specific target uh, orbit altitudes we really need to, to clean up. Uh, so I view space debris not as debris, but kind of a resource in the wrong place. So when you think about it, we've spent huge amounts of money getting very, very high-grade materials on orbit. So we've got an incredibly expensive resource kicking around um, in, in orbit. Obviously, the simplest way is to try and get that out of orbit and, and burn it up. Can we force you know, dead satellites to deorbit? And there's a whole industry that's developing uh, around the technologies that we can put on a satellite before we launch it to actively remove it from orbit in order to clear out that spot. But that doesn't solve what we've already got up there. So there's other companies looking at how can we intercept this incredibly fast-moving debris, which is, of course, tumbling uh, in three axes. Uh, how do we, we capture this, this material uh, and either destroy it, burn it up in the atmosphere, or perhaps much more interestingly, is this a resource we can then process on orbit and perhaps build new satellites or new technology? Uh, and NASA's actually done a study of reusing or repurposing the upper stages of, of, of launch rockets. Could we actually take these huge cylindrical objects, which are almost in low Earth orbit, could we then boost them to actually get into orbit? And that could form the outer shell of a future space station. So 
So a lot of thought is, is taking place. A lot of companies are actually being formed to address space debris and see it as an economic opportunity. So I think it's really exciting times in the industry. So no real surprise, we're seeing a lot of initiatives in the UK, these awarding of, of kind of relatively low-level grants to explore ideas of how can we turn what appears to be a, a problem into a commercial opportunity. So very exciting times. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm fascinated by uh, as someone who's very engaged with the sustainability uh, of of engineering processes. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by hearing from you that that this idea of actually building things out in space with the space debris uh, that in itself sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity. But to be able to to gather all of this material together. Um, which I, I presume some of the is quite rare materials. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. When you think about well, just the, the chassis, uh, the frame of of a satellite is very high grade aluminium. It's very expensive, refined uh, material, and the sort of silicon that we put on orbit to power our satellites is very high grade, very high efficiency um, uh, solar panels. You know, it's state of the art um, triple junction solar panels because we need very high efficiency so we can make a smaller solar panel to get it into orbit because it's back to that, that challenge of getting very efficient technology um, on orbit. So we have very expensive materials. And of course, when a satellite gets to the end of its life, it's not every single component that that's worn out. It tends to be, especially with a geostationary satellite, they simply run out of fuel. They run out of the ability to carry on pointing in the direction we want them to point in. So in some cases, you've got satellites approaching, you know, a billion dollars in value. That's simply the fuel tank's empty. Wow. So it makes a huge amount of sense to work out how perhaps we can either refuel that asset and bring it back to life, or perhaps more ambitiously, in the future, we design a satellite to be disassembled on orbit robotically, and perhaps we can reuse the solar panels that may have another five or ten years' life in them. Maybe we can reuse the antenna system. So the idea of designing a satellite for on-orbit disassembly, I think, is something we're going to start to see the, the industry transition to, because it makes huge economic sense to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, I'm I'm really excited to to hear about that. I, I'd be really interested to hear from any of our listeners as well if they've got any thoughts on how how they might do that. So uh, if you've got some ideas, please send us an email. We'd we'd be more than happy to to hear about your ideas for recovering some of this material. Now, a few years ago, Mike, the IMECI reported on the growing market for nano and micro satellites, uh, and of course. The, the multi-sat program Starlink uh, now has over, I think, a thousand satellites in orbit, which which will be used for global internet access. So what kind of innovations in space and satellite technology are we going to see in the future? And what, what do you think is going to really drive the industry forward? Um, I, I think we're going to start to see what I call um, containerization. Uh, so let me explain uh, that that term. So in the same way, when we hit upon the idea of evolving the shipping container, 
as an efficient way of moving goods and services around the planet. Because before that, you know, ships simply had kind of sacks and bags and kind of open um, containers loaded on them. It was an incredibly inefficient way of moving things around until someone had the bright idea, why don't we have a shipping container? They can then stack in a uniform, predictable way on board a boat. And you know what? We can then lift them onto the back of a truck and transport them way more efficiently. And that's caused a massive drop in cost in transportation. So now we're in the space industry. It used to be every satellite was a complete bespoke design, which meant you had to come up with a bespoke way of of getting it on top of the rocket you want to get into orbit. What we've started to see in the industry with nanosats and so-called CubeSats is we're now agreeing standardized form uh, form factors for satellites. So we talk about a 3U, a 12U, a 16U. So if you can take a standard satellite chassis and use that as your baseline, then already you've saved yourself a huge amount of money because you're not designing the external uh, framework for your satellite. And of course, if you stay within that form factor, you can then slot into a standard launch cradle uh, on, on a satellite. So the cost of getting onto orbit is dropping significantly the more and more we standardize and agree certain form factors. Of course, it doesn't mean every satellite can conform in the same way. Not everything you want to ship across the ocean fits into a shipping container. But by and large, if you are smart enough and have you know, a great team of engineers that you can design your mission, you know that camera you want to get on orbit or that communication system, if you can design it to fit inside a standardized form factor, um, then it's going to really drop the cost and drive the volume in the industry. And that's exactly what we're seeing with these large constellations. They are essentially carbon copies of each other. So now we're moving towards a so-called production line approach to uh, to space hardware. So rather than a satellite taking decades to design and build, literally, certainly with the uh, Starlink and OneWeb, the aim is to literally have a satellite coming off the production line you know, every day, or in some cases, two or three satellites per day coming off a, a production line. And you only get, you can only do that when you agree on standardization ac- across the whole portfolio uh, of the satellite technology ecosphere. And I think the, the other point I touched on that I think is really exciting is designing our satellites in future to be disassembled and reused on, on, on orbit. So standardization and reusability, reassembly uh, on orbit, I think uh, are going to be really interesting areas uh, that the space sector is going to move towards. Yes, it sounds like there there are a lot of opportunities there for engineers in in other sectors of of industry to be able to bring some of their knowledge to this particular problem in terms of the production line and the process of developing these technologies. You're absolutely right. You know, why are we going to try and learn from a blank sheet of paper? I think the automotive industry is a fantastic example of that. You know, a modern car is an incredibly complex machine. Yet we get them coming off the production line every 30 minutes. And and this is technology that people's lives depend upon. You know, it's got to protect a human being. So from one engineering aspect, you could argue the standard is somewhat higher than than a cheap CubeSat. So how do we leverage those engineering skills uh, from an operational production environment? How do we bring that learning, that understanding that's evolved over 100 years in the automotive industry, how do we bring that uh, into the space industry and and then build upon that excellent skill set? Mike, thank you so much for 
really giving us an insight into the way that uh, these antenna and booms and all of this equipment gets stored into these really small spaces. It's been really fascinating to listen to to the work that you've done. And I can see just how passionate and, and engaged you are with uh, developing new innovations and technology. So thank you ever so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for inviting me. And yeah, I guess as a small child, my, my dream kind of came true. I, I am working in space, even though I'm not flying in space yet. I think there's a lot of people who would be very envious to know that, you know, you're a space engineer. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's all for this month. In the next episode, we'll be taking a journey through the rail industry. We will be finding out about rail automation and the future of train design, what steps the industry is taking to create emissions-free systems, and the importance of rail connectivity in mass transit programmes. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.